0: This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. I want to begin by reading these words. Inspired by God with us in mind. Psalm 46. This is the Word of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress." Three years ago this month was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, on, on the day before, October 30th, 2017, I had the joy of being where it began. I had the joy of being in Wittenberg, Germany, the known as the birthplace of the Reformation. It was there on the door of the castle church that Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses, sparking a debate that would soon grow into a blaze that would change the world. When you're in Wittenberg, as you make your way down that medieval street to the church, one immediately spots the tower of that church, 300 feet high. And circling the top of that tower, overlooking the city, are these words, Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott. A mighty fortress is our God the opening line to Luther's most famous hymn, the hymn often called the Battle Hymn of the Reformation. Make your way down to the city square. You'll find a large monument to Luther, a big statue with a plaque on the base of that monument, Ein Feste Burg ist unser Gott. You'll see those words in many places in Wittenberg. Luther is all over Wittenberg. And besides being one of the church's best-known, best-loved hymns, it didn't stay in the church. That hymn played an important role in German history. It's been used by armies marching into battle. It's been incorporated in great musical works by composers from Bach to Mendelssohn to, to Debussy. It was sung at the funeral of our own president, Eisenhower. It even made an appearance in The Simpsons. There's actually a sad irony, though, in all of that. Uh, Those powerful words tower over Wittenberg. They've rung out throughout the centuries, but their meaning is often overlooked and their significance ignored. That hymn was inspired by and based upon this psalm, Psalm 46. And like Ein Festiburg This psalm is meant to be more than words on a page or lyrics in a hymn or engravings on a monument. This psalm contains precious, strengthening, bracing truth about God, bolstering truth about God's purpose and His posture towards His people. And what's particularly relevant about this psalm in October 2020 is its context. This psalm has in view trouble, not inconvenience or irritation or hassle, earth shaking, life threatening trouble. It bears an eerie resemblance to our own present cultural moment. Has there ever been in your lifetime such a combination? A confluence of life-altering, health-threatening, culturally-disrupting, economically-crippling, politically-divisive circumstances. I mean, life as we know it has changed. Work and school and shopping and socializing and how you wash your hands... And all of that has been intensified by a summer of conflict and protests and riots and now an emotionally charged presidential election and now a president in the hospital suffering the effects of the very pandemic that has crippled the nation in so many ways. It just seems like our nation has never been more divided politically and culturally. You just find yourself wondering what headline awaits us today. I don't want to be melodramatic, but it does remind me of Galadriel's words at the very beginning of the first Lord of the Rings film. Do you remember that? The world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. That's the feel you can get in this season. To people facing such trouble, to people frightened by trouble, this psalm delivers. It delivers authoritative, perspective-altering, circumstance-interpreting truth. And, and like Luther himself and his great hymn, this is a rugged psalm. This is a robust psalm. This is a uh, a defiant song. Some, some psalms come to us, don't they? And they, they speak tenderly to us. They come and soothe us. Psalm 46 looks trouble and calamity in the face and it stares it down and it exhorts us to radical confidence in God, whatever life brings. That's really the theme of this psalm and and the message I believe the Lord would want us to hear from it this morning. Here, Here is what God wants us to know this morning. God's presence with His people makes them secure no matter the threat. I think that's the message of this psalm. God's presence with us, with His people, makes us secure no matter the threat. Whatever you might be facing this morning, there is no scenario this psalm doesn't apply to. There are no special circumstances outside of this psalm's field of vision. To every one of us this morning, Psalm 46 comes to us like a strong, wise friend, unfazed by our trouble, undaunted by our circumstances, and it speaks faith and courage and comfort to our souls. God, through this psalm, speaks faith And courage and comfort to our souls. So let's let's open our hearts this morning to the strong, wise friend, to God Himself as He speaks to us. As we look at the Psalm, we can see three aspects of God's care for us in trouble and in life. I'll mention them up front. They're very simple. We're going to see God's protection, we're going to see God's presence, and we're going to see God's pronouncement. So First, number one, God's protection. Look with me again at verse 1 of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It, it, it just sort of jars you at the beginning. Note the very first word of the psalm. It's not I or we. There's no opening plea or prayer, just God. Before any description, any prayer, any exhortation, out of the gate, the psalmist just rivets our attention upon God. Like that band around the tower in Wittenberg, this writer raises a banner over the entire psalm, really a banner over the entire life of the people of God. Before any examination of circumstances, before any consideration of trouble, there is this confession, God is our refuge and strength. And remember, this is a song. This is a, it's poetic, and so the images are meant to be mined for their meaning. God is a refuge. It's one of those psalm words we can just read over. It's actually a very prominent psalm, a very prominent word in book one of the Psalms, Psalms 1 to 41. But think about the word, he's chosen it in, intentionally. A refuge is a safe, inaccessible shelter, a place where danger cannot reach you. So picture a battle, soldiers arrive through a castle gate, the other army hot on their heels, they shut the giant doors, they pull the the, the tree trunk behind them, instant safety, complete security. That's a refuge. God says, think of me that way. A safe, secure place to hide from all danger, all turmoil, all threats. Think of me that way. Do you think of Him that way? He's also our strength. So we're not just protected, we're empowered. Empowered to act, given wisdom to decide, infused with resolve to to get out of bed, to take another step when we're exhausted and discouraged, maybe paralyzed with fear. So He's our protection, He's our supply. Okay. That's the banner. Now, lest we think that kind of protection is distant or difficult to access, reserved, you know, reserved for pastors or reserved for special Christians or reserved for special moments. Has this odd phrase in verse 1b. He is a very present help in trouble. More literally, a help in trouble, he is very surely present found. He's he's not a distant help. He's not a potential help. He's not a help if you can just find the secret. Read the right book, and He will help. Say the right prayer, and He will help. Help yourself, and He will help. That's not what it says. No, the point is this. He is a help that is there when you need it. Do you need it? He's there. Right now. What's, what's more real to you this morning, your trouble or the God who is there? Here's the reality. He is more present to you than your trouble. And don't miss, every word in Scripture is important. Don't miss the very important preposition here, God is a help in trouble you see the assumption the psalm assumes <laughs> trouble trouble will come to the godly it's it's in the part of the very fabric of a fallen world christians are not exempt from it we are not immune to it as has often been said just live long enough you're going to get trouble you're going to suffer But this psalm brings hope to it. And and even the particular word for trouble here is vivid. Um, It it, it suggests a sense of confinement, of being hemmed in. So so it's any threatening situation where there's no room to move, no space to maneuver, no no escape, no, no way out. Perhaps you've had that feeling. no idea what I'm going to do, feel trapped, see no way out of this, have no hope in this. Or maybe it's after the fact. This situation is just broken. There's glass all over the floor. There's just no fixing it it's especially in those moments in desperate moments that god is a very present help he he has blocked those moments out on his calendar he could not be more present in your desperate situation and note something else beautiful about this. The text does not say God will help. Rather, God is a help. God, God doesn't just like send you help. God himself will come to you with all of his care and all of his compassion and all of his wisdom and all of his resources and all of his omnipotent strength. That's the theological banner over this psalm. That's the theological banner over your lives. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, a help in desperate circumcises. He is very surely found. He's there. Now, given that truth, given that immovable foundation to our lives, how do you respond? What effect is that meant to have on our souls? That's what we see in verse 2. A conclusion is drawn. Therefore, given all this, therefore, we will not fear. If, If God is really this, then fear makes no sense. That's very insightful. Fear fear reveals the logic that is operating in our hearts. Fear shows what we're trusting in that might fail us. Fear shows what we're cherishing that we might lose. Fear shows us what we're trying to hold on to that we cannot control. You see, the the world tells us a story in which fear makes sense. Perfect sense. If we really are just the result of accidental processes, no purpose, no meaning, alone and vulnerable in this world, then be afraid. Be very afraid. The Bible tells us a different story. It gives us a worldview in which fear makes no sense. The maker, sustainer, and ruler of the world has acted. He has acted to get a people for himself. And he hasn't just saved people. He's taken responsibility for them. He is with them in trouble. Nothing can destroy. His good purposes for them. Nothing. And that's no platitude for the writer. You see what he says here? He imagines worst-case scenario. Look look at his language. There are four catastrophic scenarios in verses 2 and 3. It's marked by that repetition of the word though. Look at what he says. We will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and roam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. I mean, it's like a an apocalyptic film. Massive earthquakes altering the landscape. Mountains sliding into the sea. Tidal waves or, or tsunamis. And the, and the elements are personified. They almost come alive. The waters roar and foam and swell. They're threatening even mountains. The very picture of immovable stability. So even if the whole created order unravels, even if the very foundations of life are shaken, even if the whole world comes crashing down, even if, fill in the blank, fill in your blank, even if the psalmist puts his arm around you and, like, speaks for you, kind of looks you in the eye and then looks up and says, we will not fear, will we? We will not fear. And you sit there and go, okay, we won't. I told you this was a strong friend. And it, and it doesn't take an earthquake or a tidal wave to feel like your world is crashing down. You know, there's a lot of headlines flying. Personal pain does not get suspended in a pandemic or a political season. So what's your worst case scenario? The psalm begs us to ask that question. What's so precious in your life that if it were threatened, fear. If it were taken away, panic. Or maybe it already has. It could be anything. You, You dread a future where it appears finances will be insufficient or fail. You have longings, godly longings for a spouse or, or, or a child and you just fear they just won't be fulfilled. Perhaps you have a child and you pray and you long and you just want a child to love Christ and their heart seems cold and all oh, my talking is just not helping or you, or someone you love, maybe enduring a sickness with no end in sight, or a terminal diagnosis whose end seems all too clear. It's to those scenarios that this text especially applies. Friends, This psalm was written to take us by the shoulders and assure us, to look us in the eye and assure us, nothing can do you ultimate harm. Nothing can threaten God's good purposes for you within the refuge of His protective presence. Look at, think of your trouble. Look, look at your trouble. There's, there's something, there's someone massive between you and that trouble. There, there, there is in Him and nowhere else security, protection, strength, grace. Whatever you fear in Him, you can face. Whatever you need, deliverance, protection, wisdom, endurance, He will provide. God's presence with His people makes them secure no matter what. That's the first aspect, God's protection. Second aspect of God's care and trouble, number two, God's presence. God's presence. What was implicit in the first part of the psalm becomes explicit here. Look at verse 4 with me. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Did you hear the dramatic change in tone? We, we go from roaring waves and trembling mountains to a tranquil river in a glad city. The whole, the whole picture moves from chaos to calm. And What makes a difference is the presence of God. The writer uses vivid symbolism to depict God's presence. Foaming waters... Roaring waters give way to a river. Do you see that? Whose streams bring life and refreshment. You're meant to bring to mind Eden. Where, the, where a river waters the tree of life. And it flows to the city of God. You're meant to think of Jerusalem where God chose to make His very presence dwell in the temple. Chaos Danger replaced with serenity, joy. It's it's a picture of God present with His people, dwelling with them in peace and protection. It's a little glimpse into reality. That becomes explicit in verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And then it's like the camera zooms out again, and this tranquil, secure city is contrasted with images of national turmoil and threat. Look at verse 6. The nations rage. You just get whiplashes. The camera goes back and forth. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. You see that word rage? It's the same word as roar. In verse 3, the waters are roaring, the nations are raging. It's a picture of cosmic conflict. Fallen creation, rebellious nations rail and conspire against God and His purposes. That's the background of life in this world. But then, I love this, God speaks. Verse 6, literally, He gives His voice. He he gives a shout, and the whole troubled, roiling, groaning earth melts, dissolves like wax before him. You see what the psalmist is doing? To the, to the threat and the terror of verses one to three, he steps back and provides, so so he acknowledges This stuff's going on. He acknowledges this is real. He acknowledges this feels tough. This is frightening. This is unsettling. So he acknowledges that, but then he steps back and he provides for us the fuller picture, the deeper reality. God's not off the stage, maybe swooping in to rescue us. No, he's in the middle of it all ruling and reigning and protecting, and that trouble is no match for His sovereign power, His omnipotent Word. So, in addition to personal trouble, these verses picture national trouble, not just trouble for the individual, but trouble for the people of God. And If you've had your eyes open, you'll know in recent years the the velocity of trouble in our nation has just accelerated. The culture seems to just rage against the church, against God's people, against God's truth. There's no longer just disagreement or dismissal. There's aggression. Reject our culture's redefinition of marriage? You're not just benighted, you're a bigot. Defend human life against abortion? You're an extremist. That's nothing compared to Christians losing their lives as we speak in other nations. Psalm 46 speaks to that kind of trouble as well. Don't be deceived by headlines and talking heads and cable news. The psalmist cuts through the noise and shows us the reality. God is in the midst of His people. She shall not be moved, and not because of her strength or her wisdom or her strategy or her merit. She will not be moved because, verse 5b, God will help her. When will he help her? Did you see that phrase? When morning dawns at the turning of the morning. The original reader would recognize that phrase. It comes straight from Exodus 14, 27. The very moment when Moses caused the Red Sea to come crashing down on the Egyptians. That happened at the turning of the morning. So, what is he saying? Like the rescue at the Red Sea. At just the right moment, God's help comes to save. And it comes at the moment that it's needed. And it comes because God is with us. That's how the section concludes. This is a song. And the song has a chorus that rings out in verse 7 and again in verse 11. Verse 7, here's the chorus, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This refrain is, crystallizes the story that's told in these verses. The Lord of hosts is with us. Note the change. The psalm ver- the, the started with God. Well, now it's not God. Now it's L-O-R-D, all caps. That's Yahweh. That's the personal covenant name of God given to Moses, the name that distinguishes God as Israel's personal God as your personal God and my personal God, the personal God who pledges himself to us and binds us to himself. And that's combined with that little phrase, Yahweh of hosts, armies, massed forces, heavenly legions. It's a combination. In one little phrase, a combination of personal intimacy and unlimited power. You have a heavenly father who's a matchless warrior, king. What a combination. And that's reinforced again with the phrase, the God of Jacob. Incredible. God joins His personal name to the name of His covenant partner. And we could, without doing violence to the text, put our name in there as well. If you know Jesus Christ, the God of Jacob. What does Jacob belong here? It's because God identifies with him. God identifies with you. and this god who owns his people he owns them he as his own he is our fortress different word than verse one literally and an inaccessibly high place the pictures of god setting us safely on high removed from danger and exposure he here Friends, is the chorus to the song of our lives. This powerful God with infinite resources at His disposal, who knows your name, is present with you. Never a moment when you're out of His sight. Never a moment when you're out of His hand. So you got trouble this morning? You won't be moved. Your cause will not be abandoned. The Lord of hosts is with us. You're safe with Him. He's got this. Whatever your this is, He's got it. Well, we've seen God's protection. We've seen God's presence. Now we hear something. Now we hear something. So number three, God's pronouncement. For the first time in the psalm, imperatives, commands appear. Four of them in all. The first two are in the psalmist's voice and they come as an invitation. Look at verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. So, the psalmist wants us to view the future informed by God's actions in the past. We're not meant to go blindly into the future. We're meant to go into the future with a history that informs that future. And all of salvation history, he's making the point, is marked by God acting to deliver and preserve His people. What's what's history about? Well, to a large extent, it's about God acting to deliver and preserve His people. That's who He is. It's what He does. So, again, don't be deceived by appearances. Don't be shaken by headlines. God is not passive in history. History is not just kind of barreling forth out of control. God is moving history to His final goal. And it's... (laughs) It's not weak. It's not peace through compromise. This is peace through victory. He makes war cease. He breaks bows. He shatters spears. What the world raises up against God in its rebellion, He just shatters. So, to the wicked who exalt themselves, who presume to oppose God or ignore God, and to the righteous... Tempted to fear trouble, the psalmist invites us, look up from your ambitions, you proud. Look up from your fears, you timid, you battered, and remember... Remember what He's done to save and preserve His people. Consider His ways. His purposes will triumph. They are invincible. All opposition, all trouble will be removed. That's what He's saying. That's the psalmist. But then, oh, then, suddenly and unannounced, God speaks. The heavenly voice, remember the one that melts The earth like wax, the heavenly voice now breaks in in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now if those first two imperatives were an invitation, these two issue a challenge. Remember the context, in light of all that has preceded, God's protection with His people, God's presence with His people, God's unrivaled power and authority, God's certain and ultimate victory over evil and rebellion and ambition and personal autonomy. In light of all that, two challenges follow. First, be still. There's a few Hebrew words that are translated this way. This is not a call to quiet meditation. This is not a gentle reminder to trust God, to wait on God. It's a strong injunction. Be still. Cease. Yield. Stop it. One translation, abandon your course. Another translation, An end to your fighting. You ever read it that way? And so to sinful, self-satisfied humanity, God commands, cease. Stop your attempts to triumph and oppress and rule. Abandon your project of living life apart from God and His purposes. Stop it. So if you have in your guest bath a little frame with this verse on it to cheer up your friends. You you might want to get a new one. <laughs> Psalm twenty three. The second command is this know that I am God. Recognize me for who I am, the sovereign, unrivaled one who works all, who rules all things and is working all things for my good and perfect and ultimate purposes. Now, these commands are addressed first to sinful humanity, and they apply to every person who lives or seeks to live independently from God. So if, if, if you're here or if you are watching online and you are not a Christian, it's so grateful to speak to you, but it's vital you hear what God's Word is saying and that you heed these commands. The, the, Old, Testament, the Old Testament writing here speaks of God's actions to judge the wicked and to save His people. All of those actions He was aware of, point Forward to God's greatest act in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. The very purpose for which Jesus came was to deal once and for all with rebellion against God. Scripture is clear, every person has turned away from God, every person has gone their own way, every one of us has denied God's authority and rejected His love and renounced His rule. Every person takes their place in this picture of rage against God. We've all been there. And if you're still there, today you, you can respond to this command two ways. Be still. The New Testament would render that. Repent. Turn from ruling your own life. Turn from this fantasy of living independently of God. Pursuing things that offend Him and poison you. Just turn from that. You can turn today. And secondly, know that He is God. Acknowledge Him as God and receive His Son, Jesus, as your Savior. The One who came not only to deal with rebellion, but to bring that rebellion on His shoulders to die for your sins. You can be forgiven today. You can know God as your protector forevermore today all the promises of this song if you're not a christian none of this none of the promises here are good news for you but turning to christ all of the promises of this song can be yours that's just that's just glorious news if if you humble yourself and receive what christ did for yourself and place your life in his strong loving hands. It can be, everything can be new. I beg you, consider that. I beg you, do that. It'll never be the same. The commands of verse 10 also speak to God's people. And so to the, to the restless heart, if you're restless this morning, God would say, be still. Stop, stop living like you don't know me. Cease your strivings to solve your problems. Cease your efforts to outmaneuver your circumstances, to control your life, to find peace and refuge in yourself or your circumstances or anywhere else but God and all that He promises to be for you in Jesus Christ. Stop. Secondly, no. Remember, lay hold of again, I am God. Let me be God again to you. Let me lift from your shoulders your fears and your future and your burdens and your disappointments and your longings and your strivings. No, you know who I am. I've revealed myself to you in Christ. Receive me again. Lay hold of my goodness again. God follows His commands with these promises. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. For the sinner outside of God's grace, that is frightening news. God will be seen in His glory. His authority will be acknowledged. As hard as your heart is right now, as smug as you are, you will acknowledge His authority. His righteous judgment will be executed. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for the Christian, those are not threats. (laughs) Those are promises of joy. Think about that. For God to be exalted means that that we will see Him in His beauty and His his glory and His his all-sufficiency. We'll know Him fully in His love. That's what we were made for. We're going to see Him. We're going to know Him. All that trouble is going to be gone. For God to be exalted means His purposes of wisdom and love and mercy will be fully accomplished in your life. So for God to be, I'll sum it up this way, for God to be exalted means that you and I will be filled with joy and flooded with good. When God is exalted, we will be filled with joy and flooded with good. And when we grasp that, we will add our voices to the chorus of this song. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I used to drop my Youngest son, when I was dropping him off a few years ago to school, he was very quiet. He'd get out of the car, and I'd look at him and say, Buddy, the Lord of hosts is with us. God of Jacob is our fortress, right? He'd go. Yeah, Dad. <laughs> I wanted to send him off singing this song. You know, as as we sit here this morning, we we have a deeper understanding and a greater assurance than than even the psalmist had when he wrote this song. The The trouble he imagines here is external. But there's a greater trouble from which we must be saved. The greater trouble is God. And His righteous wrath that He must, if He's a God worth worshiping, He must pour that wrath out on sin. And the God who was with the psalmist, as history unfolded, drew nearer still in the person of Jesus Christ who was called Emmanuel, God with us. Echoing a very phrase in this psalm. He is God with us, and Jesus bore the greater trouble on that cross, bearing our sin, absorbing God's wrath, removing all hostility. And so for us, the metaphor changes from a castle to a cross. The cross has become our refuge, saving us from the greatest trouble of all. And because God saved us from the greater trouble, He can come to us in any trouble, knowing He is with us. He will not forsake us. No matter the threat, God's protective presence makes His people secure. Regardless of what you're facing Today, because of the cross, you need never again doubt God's presence or His protection. You just flee to that refuge, which is a cross. A few men knew this or expressed it quite like Martin Luther. In his fight for the gospel during the Reformation, Luther took on all comers. (laughs) The power of the Pope, the power of the Catholic Church, the power of the Holy Roman Empire itself. He faced physical threats. He faced relational threats. He faced death threats. He faced health threats. He faced church threats. threats. He, He faced threats like we can't even imagine. And when the stress and the pressures and the trouble would become too severe to bear when he grew fearful or discouraged he would turn to his friend and coworker philip melanchthon and he would say this come philip let us sing number 46 and let them do their worst let them do their worst There is one safe place in a world under judgment. Jesus Christ Himself. And we can face any trouble knowing nothing is beyond His wisdom or His power or His compassion. And in that trouble, He's there to comfort, to encourage, and to bring us all the grace we need. Whatever the trouble, the Lord hosts is with us let's pray heavenly father this this news This strengthening news, this bracing news, this, this encouraging news. Lord, it, it sometimes seems too good to be true. Given who we are, given our our fears, given our sin, given our weakness. Lord, we're just weak. Father, thank you. You do not despise our weakness. Thank you that our weakness qualifies us for your help. Thank you that your invitation to weak people, to fearful people like us is to look to you, to trust in you, to lay hold of you. The Lord hosts is with us. God, Jacob, is our invincible fortress. And we know it's true. And we experience it more deeply than the psalmist because Jesus Christ came to give us refuge, to pay for our sins, to draw us to Himself. And now, Jesus, thank You. You will never leave us or forsake us. Father, for these dear folks, I pray they would leave with this impressed deeply on their souls. Your presence with us makes us secure no matter the trouble. Oh Lord, be exalted in our lives as we look to You and trust You and receive grace from You in our trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.